0: Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode.
1: Welcome to episode 148 of the GDPR Weekly Show and coming up in this week's episode we have a look at the fastly outage which occurred on Tuesday this week which brought down a number of major websites worldwide. We then have news that Amazon could face the biggest ever GDPR penalty thanks to action from the data regulator in Luxembourg. We then come to the UK where the NHS Data Grab opt-out scheme has been given an extended deadline so you can now opt out anytime up till the 1st of September this year. And we then also have exciting news that the EU has introduced new standard contractual clauses so at long last after the SRAMS 2 case we can begin getting things back in order. We then travel to Tunbridge Wells in Kent, where there's been a data breach which has shut down two schools in the town. And then to Belgium, where the whole state government is facing action under GDPR. We then return to the UK and to Liverpool, where a doctor has lost patient medical data. We then have news of the largest password breach in history. And we then have news of data breaches at McDonald's, both in Southeast Asia and in the US itself. We then travel to the US where we have news of a data breach at Volkswagen Audi. And staying in the US, we have news that the US government has recovered a substantial share of the ransom paid in the colonial pipeline data hack. We then have news of a data breach affecting the electronic arts. And we then have an important ruling from a court in the Netherlands which could set an interesting precedent with regard to immaterial damages. We then travel to China where China is developing its new data protection law and looks to be including an interesting clause on what happens to your personal data post-mortem. And then finally this week, we return to the UK, where the Appeal Court has found that immigration exceptions under the Data Protection Act 2018 are non-compliant with GDPR. So as always, a good range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com we do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible to respond to each piece of feedback individually.
0: Stay home. Stay safe.
1: We begin this week with news about the outage at Fastly, a content delivery network, which brought down a number of large websites across the Internet on Tuesday this week and the outage was caused by a bug, and not by any form of cyber-attack, despite some of the early media reports which reported it as being a cyber-attack. There's no evidence at all that this was a cyber-attack. It was simply a bug in Fastly software. The origin of the incident stretches back to the twelfth of May, when Fastly began a software deployment that included a bug that could be triggered by what it called specific customer configuration under specific circumstances. All was fine until 10.58 on the 8th of June when the Fastly infrastructure experienced the initial onset of global disruption after what it called a valid customer configuration activated the bug. The bug caused 85% of the Fastly network to return errors and led to the mass lack of access to clients' websites. Few people probably didn't notice what was happening because fastly supplies the content delivery network for a large number of well-known brands across the globe, including Amazon, Twitch, Reddit, the Guardian newspaper, Boots, Challenger Bank, Stripe, content provider A&E, the Financial Times newspaper, the New York Times, and also gov.uk, the UK government website. It's understood that the outage affected Australia, United Arab Emirates, Japan, Singapore, Chile, Argentina, Peru, Brazil, the UK, Ireland, Denmark, the Netherlands, Germany, Finland, Spain, Norway, Italy, Sweden, the USA, Canada, France, Austria, South Africa, and India. In a statement, Fastly said that it detected the disruption within one minute, identified and isolated the tours, and disabled that configuration. It said its engineering team identified the adjustment configuration at 1127 and affected sites began to recover at 11.36. According to Fastly technical data, the incident was officially concluded at 13.25. Fastly wanted to stress that 95% of its network was operating again as normal within 49 minutes of the outage. It has now created a permanent fix for the bug, and indeed it began deploying that at 18.25, on the same day that the bug was detected. Commenting on the outage, Fastly Senior Vice President of Engineering and Infrastructure, Nick Rockwell, said the outage was broad and severe and that Fastly was truly sorry for the impact to our customers and to everyone who relies on them. Fastly says it's now carried out a post-mortem into what happened and identified measures it can take to stop this happening again. Nick Rockwell said, We have been and will continue to innovate and invest in fundamental changes to the safety of our underlying platforms. Broadly, this means fully leveraging the isolation capabilities of WebAssembly and compute at Edge to build greater resilience from the ground up. We'll continue to update our community as we make progress towards this goal. Even though there were specific conditions that triggered this outage, we should have anticipated it. We provide mission critical services and we treat any action that can cause service issues with the utmost sensitivity and priority. We apologise to our customers and those who are them them for the outage and sincerely thank our community for its support.
0: Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time.
1: Amazon could be facing the largest fine in GDPR history. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that Amazon faces a potential $425 million fine proposed by CMPD, the privacy regulator in Luxembourg, home of Amazon's European headquarters. The CMPD alleges that Amazon's collection and use of personal information violated GDPR. The proposed fine would represent roughly 2% of Amazon's registered net income of $21.3 billion for 2020, and under GDPR, of course, fines can be up to 4% of a company's annual revenue. Now, this fine could yet change because of the size of the fine and because it affects customers right across the EU and indeed here in the UK then the final fine will not be decided until all 27 countries have been consulted. Now, it's possible that other data privacy regulators, be that the UK ICO or other regulators across Europe, now that it's in the consultation stage, could seek to even increase that penalty upon Amazon. Of course, there was a chance they could decrease it as well. It will probably take a few months for all of the decisions to be made right across Europe, But we will, of course, keep a careful eye on this for you and bring you any updates in forthcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 145, we mentioned about the NHS data grab, where data from your GP surgery was being uploaded to a central store by NHS Digital, and although that data was being anonymized, there was concern because the general public had not really been informed about the exercise, and many didn't realise that they had to complete a form at the GP to stop the transfer of data, i.e., it's implied that you have consented to this data being transferred unless you opt out. Now, because it's in direct contravention of GDPR, and also because of some public outcry raised by various newspapers. The NHS announced this week that it was extending the deadline for people to withdraw their consent up to the 1st of September 2021. Addressing the reasons behind the change, Minister for Public Health Joe Churchill MP said, We will use this time to talk to patients, doctors, health charities and others to strengthen the plan, build a trusted research environment and ensure that all data is accessed securely. Digital rights campaign group Foxglove has celebrated the deadline extension, however it highlighted a number of questions that still remain about the scheme, including how NHS patients will be notified about a new deadline, especially those who aren't online, and what terms will NHS Digital stipulate for corporations to be allowed to access people's personal health records. It should be stressed that this new data grab applies only to people living in England. NHS Digital is keen to stress that the data will be anonymised, and that it will hold the keys to unlock the anonymised data, but says it would only ever do this to re-identify the data if there was a lawful reason to do so, and it would need to be compliant with data protection law. In an example scenario of why medical records could be unscrambled to reveal the identity of the patient, NHS Digital said a patient may have agreed to take part in a research project or clinical trial and has already provided consent for their data being shared with the researchers for this purpose. NHS Digital will publish a list of who it shares its database of anonymised records with, which will be updated every month. However, privacy campaigners say it can be extremely difficult to find out who sees the data due to the NHS' opaque nature of its commercial relationships. For its part, the NHS says that patient data is never used for insurance or marketing purposes, promoting or selling products or services, market research or advertising. So what can you do to stop your data being taken into the central repository, Well, you have to opt out, and you have to do that by obtaining a form from your GP surgery and submit it to your GP. And it's very important that that form needs to be back with your GP before September the 1st of this year. You can still choose to opt out after September the 1st, but if you do that, it will only apply to any new data after the date you opt out. So any existing data will be transferred to this central store. This remains a controversial issue, And if you are a Clubhouse member, you may well have heard myself and Dr. Jackie Taylor debating the issue on this week's GDPR surgery on Clubhouse. And it's doubtless a subject we will return to again at the end of July when Dr. Jackie Taylor kindly agreed to come for an interview on this podcast. So we look forward to that episode. If in the meantime we have any update from the NHS, we will of course bring that to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you have a number of times heard us talk about the Schrems 2 judgment, which effectively made the EU-US Data Privacy Shield redundant. Now, we first brought news of that to you way back in episode 100, and it's taken all this time for the EU to release new standard contractual clauses. That finally happened this week, which is great news, And so we have some important dates now in that the new standard contractual clauses must be used in any contracts which are being signed up after the 27th of June 2021, so just 14 days away as we're broadcasting this. You can still carry on using contracts with the old standard contractual clauses at the moment, but you must put steps in place to phase them out because it's not going to be an overnight thing to do. And all contracts must include the new standard contractual clauses by the 27th of December 2022. Now that might seem like a long time away, but putting these new clauses into a contract is not going to be a five-minute exercise because there are a number of things which need to happen as well as simply putting the wording into contracts. So to look at 10 main takeaways from the new standard contractual clauses, and don't worry, we will be returning to this topic several times in forthcoming episodes of the GDPR Wiki Show. It's just not possible to cover everything off in one episode because we have to devote the whole episode to that item. The first is that the new standard contractual clauses are more than just an update of the previous standard contractual clauses. They, in effect, are an entirely new data transfer set of rules. The second is that, as we say, there is a 18-month transition period, but that will soon go. And bear in mind that if you don't change these clauses before December the 27th, 2022, then you risk a penalty for illegal transfers of personal data outside of the European Union. One thing which I think many of us will welcome is that the new standard contractual clauses are based on a multifunctional modular approach rather than just one big chunk of documentation. So you can pick the bits which apply to your situation. So whether you are sending the data overseas because you're the data processor and the other party is the data controller or you're the data controller and the other party's is the data processor or indeed your data controller and the other party is a joint data controller. The other allowance under new standard contractual clauses is that it allows for more than one data controller and or data processor within the same contract. The fourth thing is that the new standard contractual clauses have a broader scope. The new standard contractual clauses are designed to provide appropriate safeguards within the meaning of Articles 46.1 and 2c of the GDPR for the transfer by a controller or processor of personal data process subject to GDPR to controller or subprocessor whose processing the data is not subject to GDPR. It is understood that the new standard contractual clauses should fulfil the requirements of Articles 28.3 and 28.4 of GDPR. The first thing is that the new standard contractual clauses impose on data importers GDPR-like principles for processing personal data. Now this is not such a major change from the previous standard contractual clauses but unless it has changed so it's important to be put in place carefully. One significant change within this part of things is that the new standard contractual clauses allow the right for individuals who are data subjects who are affected by the contract to which these clauses are attached, to request to see a copy of your standard contractual clauses and any relevant appendices that have been attached to the contract. The sixth major thing is that the new standard contractual clauses require data importers to adhere to data security standards that are higher than they were in the previous standard contractual clauses. Interestingly, the new standard contractual clauses also introduce a duty on the data importer or and or controller to notify the relevant supervisory authority and, in some cases, affected individuals of personal data breaches. The seventh thing is that the new standard contractual clauses include a redress and complaint handling procedure for individuals. If there is a dispute between an individual and one of the parties over compliance with the new standard contractual clauses, that party will have to use its best efforts to resolve the issue amicably and in a timely fashion. The eighth thing is that the new standard contractual clauses include specific obligations aimed at addressing the Central European Court's concerns in the SRAMS II case. The ninth thing is that the new standard contractual clauses include stricter rules on onward data transfers, i.e. the data which you've transferred to a third party outside of the EU or the UK who then transfers that data on to another subcontractor. And the final thing is that the new standard contractual clauses require annexes with more detailed information about the transfer. For instance, in addition to listing the parties and their contact details where applicable, the annexes should include information about the party's data protection officers and or their representatives in the EU, as well as the specification of their role, i.e. are they a controller or processor. The annexes will also need to include information about transfer descriptions of the nature of the processing, the purposes of the data transfer and any further processing, the data retention period, and the frequency of the transfer. Furthermore, if the data importer is a processor, a separate annex must be completed if the data exporter is granted a specific authorization to involve sub-processors. In that case, that annex should include a description of processing that includes a clear allocation of responsibilities in the case that several sub-processors are allowed. Now, if you're in the UK, you may be asking, will these new standard contractual clauses also apply to UK GDPR, the short answer is we don't know because that decision has not yet been made by the UK ICO. But the longer answer is that in all probability, yes, you should be taking notes of these for two reasons. One, it's extremely likely that the ICO will base their standard contractual clauses around these new EU standard contractual clauses in part to aid the final decision that the UK will be an adequate country, which we've now only got 18 days for the EU to decide. And secondly, because if that adequacy decision is not made, then you're going to need these contractual clauses in place for any data you transfer to companies within the EU. So, as I said earlier, we will be returning to the new standard contractual clauses a number of times in forthcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808
1: 5312. To Tunbridge Wells in Kent in the UK now, where two schools have been closed after hackers broke into the school servers, stole data, and amongst that data, they stole encrypted pupil information. A spokesman for Stinner's Kent Academy and Stinner's Kent Primary School said they cannot be sure exactly what information the hackers have access to. But they urged parents at the Tunbridge World Schools to contact their banks and let them know that personal details could have been taken. A spokesman said that Action Fraud and the National Cyber Security Centre are investigating. The police and the Trust's own data protection company are also carrying out inquiries after the attack, which began on Wednesday. Stinner's Kent Academy Trust said on its website that the hackers told them what information they have access to. It said they did not appear to have access to the school information management system, which is where personal records with pupils, students and staff are held. However, they have encrypted this data so that we no longer have access to it, the school added. Because staff no longer held vital information on pupils, including the emergency contact details, the decision was made to close both schools on Monday. The trust is now in the process of selecting all the data from parents again, before it can reopen. The school computers all need to be reconfigured so staff can access the resources required to teach. As a result, the school set up remote learning on Tuesday. A spokeswoman for the Trust said, The Trust is working incredibly hard to ensure that our students and pupils are back in our schools as soon as it's possible to do so. If we receive any further update on this, either from the schools involved or from the ICO, we will speak to you in the next debate website of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: Stay home.
1: Stay safe. News now what we believe to be the first case of a whole state government being threatened with action over GDPR breaches. It's understood that the European Commission is about to take action against Belgium for infringement of GDPR following the filing of two anonymous complaints. It's understood that the authorities will notify Belgium by letter requesting information about the infringements. This will give Belgium two months to react. The action has been in response to the filing of two anonymous complaints to Didier Rainier, the commission in charge of implementing GDPR. The first complaint, which was filed last November, reportedly concerns the Data Protection Authority in Belgium and the appointment of four external members who also hold public office, in contradiction with GDPR, which states that all members must be free from any external influence. Among the members charged is Frank Robin. Among other things, is the CEO of the Crossroads Bank Social Security, which helped to set up the track and trace system in Belgium and the main draft of the Information Security Committee decisions. The second complaint concerns the ISC as a whole, which was created after the implementation of GDPR against the advice of the European Commission, the Data Protection Authority, and the Chancellor of State. And has previously been criticised for its decisions taken without parliamentary debate and without asking the opinion of the supervisory authority. When we have an update on this, we will of bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4 pm UK time.
1: To Liverpool now, where Midwell Martin Garcia, a senior medic at Liverpool Women's Hospital, was suspended after he lost sensitive patient data while carrying out a clinical trial without permission. It's understood that Mr. Garcia used patient consent forms headed with the Trust branding and took boxes of the patient records to a private practice. The Liverpool Echo newspaper reports that this was done to avoid the process of obtaining research approval. However, Mr. Garcia later reported his own research data missing, which included two box folders of patient information from a gynecological hospital. A disciplinary panel found that patient confidentiality had been breached, although no harm ultimately came to any patient. A ruling from the panel stated the panel was satisfied that these were extremely serious breaches of the trust, patient confidentiality, and data protection procedures. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Button. It's believed that the largest password data breach in history has been leaked online. The previous largest leak was back in 2009 when over 32 million user passwords were stored in plain text. This new leak contains 3.2 billion passwords from multiple databases and this attack has been dubbed RockYou 2021 put this into context, there are approximately 4.7 billion users on the internet so 3.2 billion passwords are now being revealed that's probably something like a 75% chance that your passwords are included amongst them. Therefore, it's recommended that you immediately check to see whether your passwords were affected by the leak, and if they were, then obviously it's time to change all your passwords. The reason it's dangerous, even though this list is simply passwords, no other data, just passwords, is that because combining this password with the already revealed email addresses and usernames from other data breaches... Probably it is going to allow hackers to gain access to more accounts than they would otherwise. So far, research suggests that all the passwords involved in the leak have non nasty characters and between 6 to 20 characters each. So it really is time to look at changing your passwords, probably, and at using a password manager, something like LastPass. And of course, if you can, think about incorporating two factor authentication on all of your accounts or certainly all of your sensitive accounts. You can check if your password has been affected by checking at the Have I Been Pawned website. That is Have I Been and then P A W N E D dot com website. <laughs> to South Korea and Taiwan now, where McDonald's is the latest company to be affected by data breach. The burger chain said in a statement on Friday that an investigation revealed a small number of files were accessed some of which had personal data. McDonald's is contacting affected customers and regulated in the two areas and said the payment information wasn't accessed. There was also a data breach at McDonald's in the US, but in this case there was no personal data, the data that was accessed included restaurant information such as square footage. In both cases, McDonald's credited its substantial investments it made on cybersecurity measures for finding the breaches. A spokesperson said, these tools allowed us to quickly identify and contain Recent unauthorized activity on our network, a thorough investigation was conducted and we worked with experienced third parties to support this investigation. In the future, McDonald's will leverage the findings from this investigation and further improve its security measures.
0: Contact us on Helpdesk at GDPRWeeklyShow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312.
1: To America now, and Volkswagen's US unit has said a data breach at a vendor impacted more than 3.3 million customers and prospective buyers across North America. It's understood that nearly everyone impacted were current or potential customers of Audi, one of Volkswagen's luxury brands. Volkswagen Group of America said on Friday that an unauthorised third party obtained limited personal information about customers and interested buyers from a vendor that its Audi Volkswagen brands and some US and Canadian dealers used for digital sales and marketing. The information was gathered for sales and marketing between 2014 and 2019 and was in an electronic file the vendor left unsecured. The company told regulators that the vast majority of customers only had phone numbers and email addresses potentially impacted by the data breach, but in some cases data also included information about a vehicle purchased, leased or inquired about. Volkswagen said 90,000 Audi customers and prospective buyers had sensitive data impacted relating to purchase or lease eligibility. Volkswagen said it will offer free credit protection services to these individuals. The sensitive data was comprised of driver licence numbers in more than 95% of cases. It's understood that a small number of records also included additional data like dates of birth, social security number and bank account numbers. The automaker does not believe that any sensitive information was involved in Canada. A spokesman said that Volkswagen believes the data was obtained at some point between August 2019 and May this year and is continuing to investigate the incident. Stay home, stay safe. This week the US government announced that it has recovered most of the 4.4 million dollars ransom paid to a cybercriminal gang responsible for taking the Colonial Pipeline offline last month. And you may remember a couple of episodes ago here on GGPW show we mentioned about the Colonial Pipeline data hack and the effect that it had, had on that oil pipeline. Indeed, according to the firm the pipeline carries 45% of the East Coast supply of diesel, petrol and jet fuel. On Monday, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said investigators had found and recaptured 63.7 bitcoins worth $2.3 million, the majority of the ransom paid. Since the ransom was paid, of course, the value of bitcoin has fallen sharply. Now, of course, we would always recommend in ransomware attacks that you don't pay a ransom, because there's always a danger that the People who took the data have retained a copy of it and will use it again and again to do at some point in the future. In a statement, Joseph Blount, chief executive of the Colonial Pipeline Company, said his firm was grateful for the swift work and professionalism of the FBI, which had helped recover the ransom. Holding cyber criminals accountable and disrupting the ecosystem that allows them to operate is the best way to deter and defend against future attacks, he added. In a statement, the company said that after the attack in May, Colonial made a cryptocurrency payment, and in return the company received a decryption tool, so it could unlock the systems compromised by the hackers. Mr Blount said he had authorised the payment on the 7th of May after discussions with experts who had previously dealt with Darkside. He said we didn't make that decision lightly but believed it was the right thing to do for the country. Mr Blount added that it would take months before some business systems were recovered and estimated the attack would ultimately cost the company tens of millions of dollars. Want to ask GDPR questions
0: live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday 4pm UK time.
1: It's understood from a report in Motherboard magazine that electronic arts has fallen victim to hackers who made away with the source code to FIFA 21, the frostbite engine and other game development tools. The hackers are reportedly advertising that the data is for sale on hacking forums but they'll only consider offers from big-name members of the hacking community. While it's unlikely that other web developers would use Electronic Arts code on purpose, hackers being able to see the inner workings of a game or engine could help the draft cheats or tracks. It could also reveal secret projects and game ideas or developer comments that companies would rather not see make the light of day. In addition to Electronic Arts' own proprietary code and tools, the hackers claim they have Microsoft, Xbox and Sony SDKs and API keys available for sale as well. An Electronic Arts spokesman confirmed that the hackers stole a limited amount of game source code and related tools and said the hackers didn't have access to any player data. They also said that the company had improved its security following the hack and doesn't expect any impact on its games or business. Electronic Arts made clear that it's not a ransomware attack and that it is working with law enforcement to investigate the incident. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To the Netherlands now, and an important ruling in the Dutch courts to awarding damages to individuals impacted when businesses experience a data breach could have a bearing on the prevalence of data breach class action. A regional court in the Netherlands rejected claims for damages lodged in its property platform, Nedevon. Lawyers raised the claim for damages on behalf of an anonymous house hunter. The house hunter had been notified by Nethervon that their data may have been compromised following a hack on its computer system in May 2019. The hacker was subsequently convicted of a criminal offence of computer hacking following a criminal investigation. The lawyers acting on behalf of the house hunter asked the Elderland district court to find Nethervon responsible for a breach to the right to privacy and the right to protection of personal data and all failings in relation to rules on data processing and data security under GDPR. They also asked the court to order another one to pay the house hunter €500 in damages. However, the court dismissed the claims. It found that the claims of damage and distress allegedly experienced by the house hunter following the hacking incident had not been substantiated. The court said, "...the mere assertion that there has been talk of distress is insufficient, if no substantiation is given showing that the plaintiff has suffered from this in concrete terms or how this distress has manifested itself with him. It has not become evident that the plaintiff, for instance, immediately after receiving the letter from Lederborn, asked questions or showed his concern in any other way. Other expressions of distress have also not been made or shown. Other than in the examples from case law mentioned by the plaintiff, in which compensation for immaterial damage has been awarded, it has not been shown that actual abuse was made of the data involved in the hack. On the contrary, it appears from a criminal judgment, as Nederborn also argues that the hacker had not yet sold or transferred the personal data to third parties, while all data carriers that were seized will be drawn from circulation, so there is no chance the data would end up in the wrong hands, he said. Now this ruling, coupled with earlier rulings in federal courts in Germany, could be really instructive in showing that if a class action is to secure compensation of any substance for breaches under GDPR, they have to be able to prove that distress actually happened. It's not enough simply to say, I'll try and suffer distress. We will keep an eye on this, and if there are any future talk cases across Europe that look to set further precedent, we will, of course, bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. China released more details of its new data privacy law this week, and one thing which particularly piqued our interest was that the Chinese privacy law quite clearly allows for people's privacy to be continued after they die by placing the rights to their data in the hands of their next of kin. Now, whilst a lot of the Chinese privacy law is being based on GDPRs we've mentioned previously here on the GDPR Weekly Show, this is a departure because in Europe neither primary law nor secondary law, so neither national law or GDPR, provides for post-mortem data protection. And so essentially, once you die, then the rules of GDPR don't apply to your data anymore and anyone potentially could publish them. So it'll be interesting to see if this does eventually make it into the final version of China's data privacy law, And if it does, whether that will result in it being reflected in GDPR and indeed UK GDPR at some point in the future.
0: Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday 4pm UK time.
1: And finally this week we return to the UK where a court has found that the Immigration Exemption under the Data Protection Act 2018 is non-compliant with GDPR. So a bit of history here. In August 2018, the Open Rights Group, a digital rights organisation that seeks to promote and uphold privacy and data protection rights, and another group called The Three Million, an organisation of EU citizens resident in the United Kingdom, brought a judicial review claim against the secretary of state for their home office and the digital culture, media and sport. They sought a declaration that the immigration exemption under paragraph 4, Schedule 2, the Data Protection Act 2018, which disapplies some data protection rights where the adaptation would be like to prejudice immigration control, was unlawful. They argued that the immigration exemption was incompatible with EU General Data Protection Regulation GDPR 206679 eu and the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. The defendants denied both of these contentions. In the first talk case, the claim was dismissed at first instance on the basis that the immigration exemption fell within Article 23 e of GDPR. Article 23 uh, 1 of GDPR authorises exemption from certain rights and obligations thereunder by way of a legislative measure where such an exemption respects the essence of fundamental rights and freedoms and is a necessary and proportionate measure in a democratic society to safeguard one of the specified objectives, i.e. public security or judicial proceedings. The judge said that the immigration exemption was a matter of important public interest and pursued a legitimate aim. Therefore, the judge held that it was compliant. As a result, the claimants appealed to the Court of Appeal. The main ground of the appeal focused upon Article 23.2 of GDPR, which provides that any legislative measure enacted under Article 23.1 shall contain specific provisions, at least where relevant, as to a list of eight requirements set out in paragraphs 23.1a to 23.1h of GDPR. The claimants argued the judge had been wrong to approach the case by reference to principles applicable to Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. They said the European Court of Justice case law and the terms of Article 23, paragraph 2, itself made it clear that the circumstances in which a derogation such as immigration exemption would apply, and under what substantive and procedural safeguards, must be clearly prescribed by the legislation itself or appropriate guidance within the force of law. Further, the claimants held that the judge had been wrong to approach the case on the footing that these matters could lawfully be dealt with in other ways. In other words, what they said was that the immigration exemption was so overboard as to be in breach of the express requirements which govern derogations in Article 23.2 of GDPR. In his appeal decision, Lord Justice Warby noted that although Article 23.1 had a familiar structure reflected in the Charter and the European Convention on Human Rights, its function was different. Whereas Article 8 of the ECHR prescribes a condition under which state interference with the right to respect for private and family life may be justified, Article 23 is a measure that permits the state to restrict the very scope of that right, including by removing it from the citizen altogether in specified circumstances. Further, Lord Justice Warby said, the language and structure of Article 23.2 are not familiar from the Charter or the EU Data Protection Directive 9546EC. On a natural reading of the words, Article 23.2 of GDPR particularises the requirements of Article 23.1 and sets out details of what a legislative measure, must do if it is implied with the requirements of Article 23.1. be further held that language also clearly suggested that legislative measure must have some binding force. He said that ECJ case law supported his findings on the language of GDPR. Further, he said there was nothing in the cases that supported the judges' conclusion that a distinction should be drawn between different types of derogation and that different criteria applied to a derogation that is permissive. Lord Justice Warby also said that the requirements listed in Article 23.2 of GDPR were particularised at some length and in some detail. While Article 23.2 of GDPR could be considered a checklist, it was cast in mandatory terms and called for specific provisions, which should surely be given some meaning. In any event, in Warby's judgment, in light of ECJ case law, Article 23.2 of GDPR should be read as requiring any derogation to be affected by a legislative measure that A is tailored to the derogation, B is legally enforceable, C contains provisions that are specific to the listed topics to the extent that they are relevant to the derogation in question, D are precise, and E produce a reasonably foreseeable outcome. Warby agreed with the judge that the immigration exemption addressed an important aspect of the public interest that fell within the scope of Article 23.1e of GDPR. However, he said that the judge had been wrong to reject the claimant submissions on Article 23.2 of GDPR. He held that when reading Article 23 of the GDPR as a whole, it was clear that the immigration exemption was non compliant. He pointed out that the exemption itself contained nothing specific or otherwise about any of the matters listed in Article 23.2 of the GDPR. Further, Warby said that even assuming, without deciding, that it's permissible for the specific provisions which require Article 23.2 GDPR to be contained, some separative. Further, Warby said that even assuming without deciding that it's permissible for specific provisions required by Article 23 to GDPR to be contained in some separate legislative measure, there was no such measure. Warby concluded by saying that the appropriate remedy in case of incompatibility was a sensitive matter. He therefore deferred a decision on relief, inviting further submissions in light of his findings.
0: Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312.
1: The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurety production.
0: Until next time, bye-bye.